0: Thanks, Mark. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you so much for the scriptures and particularly for that song of Mary we were just hearing. And we ask that uh, by the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would come and speak to us. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't leave me to my own strength, my own ideas, my own resources, but that your truth would shine and help us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever been so focused on something uh, that everything else seemed to fade into the background? Psychologists talk about something called a flow state. um, To describe doing something with such focus and enjoyment that your sense of time and your surroundings um, seems to disappear It's sometimes described as being in the zone. Maybe you know what that feels like. A creative space where the work kind of just flows and you find yourself getting more done sometimes in a few hours than you might do in a whole week. For musicians, it might be, you know, cracking that complex piece of music. For lawyers, it might be just connecting the dots all of a sudden on a complex legal case. For artists, it might be just reaching that special moment of inspiration to finish a piece of work. Or like me, you might be thinking, I could do with a flow state right now to get through my work emails before the Christmas break. Well, what if I told you that just as there can be a flow state, there can also be, so to speak, a worship um, state where we get so caught up with the goodness and the glory of God that his will and his grace becomes the only thing that matters. The Song of Mary can help us to do exactly that tonight, and that's why the title for today's message is um, The Heart of True Worship. And there's three sides to it. Uh, Firstly, the heart of true worship is moved to praise. Secondly, The heart of true worship is rooted in grace. And thirdly, the heart of true worship is expectant for change. So moved to praise, rooted in grace and expectant for change. So firstly, moved to praise. Verses 46 to 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. So just to give you a bit of a steer as to what's going on here, basically the angel Gabriel has come to Mary and told her that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. So kind of a big deal. And as Mary realizes that God is about to irreversibly change history through her, that God has not chosen someone with power or money or status to do this, but rather a poor Lowly teenage girl like her, she's so moved by what God is doing that she breaks out into the joyful song that we were just hearing. She's moved to praise, and as she does that, she demonstrates incredible and in many ways unequaled faith for a number of reasons. Consider for a moment Mary's circumstances and the challenges she's facing. Firstly, The birth of Christ has not actually come to pass yet the angel has promised it to her and that's it and that's enough for Mary to say my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior that is incredible faith Mary would have had to face suspicions about her and people casting aspersions on her character I mean, just try and imagine, who's going to believe that a peasant girl in a patriarchal society was visited by an angel and that she's pregnant not from a man but by the Holy Spirit? Consider also the trials and uncertainties awaiting Mary. She would have known the scriptures prophesying the suffering of the Messiah. Later, she's told that a sword will pierce her own soul as she sees her own son being nailed to a cross. And even as a baby, Herod, a murderous dictator, is going to order the murder of hundreds of firstborn sons in an evil attempt to kill Jesus. And what's amazing is with all of that on the horizon, despite her very uncertain outward circumstances, still she can find the faith and the strength to say... My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. I love this from the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. There should be a slide uh, with it that comes up. He said, um, when we have a song to sing to the Lord, we may perhaps be tempted not to sing it till our hopes are accomplished and our faith has been exchanged for fact. Oh brother, sister, he goes on, if this is your case, do not wait for your song, will spoil if you do. There is another song to be sung for the accomplished mercy, but there is a song to be sung now for the promised mercy. Therefore, do not let the present hour lose the song which is due to it. I love that. And maybe for you, I don't know what you've been praying for. It may be that you've been praying for a family member to come to Christ. Maybe, uh, you know, you've got weary of praying for a sick friend. Uh, Maybe there's a calling you thought you were sure about that God had put on your life and now the doors are just not opening. Well, Mary teaches here, doesn't she, there's a special song to be sung as we wait for God to act. As we wait for God to make a way. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be enabled to say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Let's make that the cry of our heart tonight because the heart of true worship is moved to praise. Now, uh, the World Cup has been showing recently and one thing you can be absolutely sure of is that no one has to tell fans to get excited about football? I mean, can you imagine if a fan was interviewed and they were asked, "Well, what, what, do, you know, what do you love about football?" If they were to reply by sort of dispassionately listing uh, FIFA's rulebook, we'd question, wouldn't we, wouldn't we, whether they really do love football? Or uh, a, a memory that still makes me laugh: my uncle at his first football match at Old Trafford. The ball went out for a throw-in, and when the player picked it up, he said at the f- at full volume, oh, that's a handball. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm not with that guy. Um, but Mary is a million miles away, isn't she, from a kind of dry, lifeless ascent to Christian beliefs. She's teaching us, isn't she, that the heart of true worship is moved to praise. It's seeing something of God and being moved by that. Or to put it another way, she's teaching that if we don't feel our hearts to be deeply moved by God and what he has done for us, it's an indication that we're losing sight of who he really is in himself. In the West, I think, sometimes we can sort of separate love from knowledge There's the things and the people that we love and there's things we have knowledge about over here. But Mary's saying it doesn't work like that when it comes to God. God cannot be truly known without also at the same time being adored, being loved. If you say you know God but you don't love him, adore him and esteem him, I think Mary would say you're missing the very heartbeat of what worship is about. So how I wonder is the spiritual temperature of your heart tonight. If we were to, you know, insert a spiritual thermometer into your heart and to take a reading, what would it say? Would it read warm but not red hot? Like I know God and I have moments of real joy and trust in him, but I've kind of plateaued recently in my spiritual growth. Maybe it would read lukewarm. I believe in Jesus. I kind of still rock up to church. But if I'm honest, the last time I remember being close to God was probably before the pandemic. And I haven't been in a home group for years. Maybe for you it would read cold and close to sub zero, not unlike the weather outside. And you're thinking, you know, I had faith a while ago, but to be honest, I'm not even sure why I came to church tonight and my trust in God is at a low ebb. Well, whatever the spiritual temperature of your heart is this evening, Mary shows us here how to turn up the thermostat. And it's all there, I think, in verses 47 to 48. She says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant." Now, notice that she confidently calls God her saviour. There's no doubt in her mind that God is her saviour. It's not a vague hope. It's a certainty in her experience. And it's knowing God as her saviour that brings Mary joy, that moves her to praise God. And there's nothing quite like being rescued, is there, to thrill and delight the human heart. I I quite like reading real-life survival stories, and uh, in every case, whether it's being stuck out in the open ocean for weeks, lost in the desert, trapped in a cave underground, there's one commonality between all of them, and it's the sheer elation upon being rescued, upon being saved. And Mary's teaching us here, isn't she, that until we deeply see and experience God as our saviour, we won't be able to rejoice as God longs for us to. And maybe that's your word for tonight, to be enabled to say with fresh confidence, God, thank you for saving me from death. Thank you for saving me from myself. Thank you for saving me from the hell and the judgment I would so richly deserve for the number of times I have wronged you. Thank you for, for dying in my, my place and for being my saviour. What is the heart of true worship? It's being moved to praise. But the second part of it is being rooted in grace and specifically God's grace. So Mary says... My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, and then verse 48, for, because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now that word for is important. It's indicating that the reason Mary is moved to praise is because God because God has been mindful of her circumstances, humble estate, when she says humble estate, what she really means is like lowly circumstances. She's basically saying, I'm not anyone significant. I'm not rich. I'm not powerful in the eyes of the world. And yet somehow God has graciously decided to occupy himself with me and not with those people. And I'm going to celebrate that. And so if you're here tonight and you think, you know, I don't come from a special place background. I'm not rich and powerful. I'm not strong and together. I'm not persuasive and charismatic. How could God use me? There is good news for you. And just look at Mary. I mean, Mary was a Middle Eastern teenage girl. She would have been 14 or 15 when she got pregnant with Jesus. She had virtually no influence or power in worldly terms. And yet she tells us that she is absolutely bursting to the brim with joy because she's seen something crucial about how God likes to be and to act. And what she's seen is that there's a God of grace who loves to exert himself, not on behalf of the privileged, the powerful, and the wealthy, but on behalf of people like her, the lowly, the weak, and the powerless. And that fact absolutely thrills Mary, absolutely delights her heart. And it's very similar to what the Apostle Paul uh, discovered in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Why? He goes on to say, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. And because God acts like this and supremely so towards her, Mary quite rightly says, well, from now on, all generations are going to call call me blessed. For, and there it is again, important word, for, because generations are going to call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. The mighty one has done great things for me. Mary considers everything that God has done for her in choosing her to be the bearer of God in human flesh, a totally unique, once in the history of the universe calling, and she attributes all of that, all of her blessings to the free grace of God. If if you don't know what grace means, that's just a word the New Testament uh, uses to summarize God's unmerited favor. And Mary is utterly rooted in God's grace. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She says, God looks upon the lowly like me and he does great things for them. And it's teaching that the heart of true worship is rooted in grace. And if Mary, though she was the mother of Jesus Christ and the bearer of God, that's what the early church called her, the Theotokos, God-bearer, if she could joyfully attribute all of her blessings and the ways that God used her to his grace, not taking credit for one bit of it, but humbly and gladly saying God has done great things for me, how much more do we need to be rooted in the same grace that she was? How much more do we, are we duty-bound to joyfully celebrate all that God has done for us? You know, it's a bit like imagine getting to Christmas Day seven days from now, and someone hands you a thoughtfully wrapped, beautiful, irreplaceably valuable, and personal to you present. And imagine if you, if we replied to that kindness by saying, "Ah, well, it's okay. I guess I deserved it." We'd be horror struck, wouldn't we? And we might not say those words out loud, but this is exactly what we do, I think, when God pours out countless blessings on our head, and we don't properly enjoy and thank and praise him for it. And our hearts can absorb a kind of quite a dangerous, actually, entitlement. But the truth is, God owes us nothing, and yet he has given us everything. I often think if I really understood just how in debt I am to God's grace day by day, I would never stop praising him. I would never stop rejoicing, just like Mary does here. Here's just some of the ways that God demonstrates his grace to us. He, for, he gives us forgiveness of sins through Christ. He gives us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit such that we are never alone and never left to our own resources. He gives us the promise that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. He gives us the promise that when we seek first his kingdom and his uh, will for our lives, that he'll provide everything that we need. He promises protection from the attacks of the enemy. He gives us a church family in which we can be known and loved. He gives us unique callings and gifts to use to his glory. He gives us a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, life in all its fullness, being rescued from hell and the pro- promise of eternal life. His strength being made perfect in our weakness. The list just goes on and on and on and on. And the heart of true worship is always rooted in grace. And with Mary, God invites us to say tonight, the mighty one has done great things for me. What is the heart of true worship? It's being moved to praise. It's being rooted in grace. And finally, it's being expectant for change. So in verses 51 to 54, Mary gives kind of four declarations, which I find so interesting, each beginning with the words, he has. So it says, he has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. It follows a common theme throughout the Gospel of Luke of God turning people's fortunes around, where the lowly are raised up and the proud are brought low. And you might listen to that, as I did when I was preparing this, and think, well, has God done that? Don't tyrants like Putin and others continue to have the upper hand? Don't millions continue to go hungry? Isn't justice increasingly rare in this broken world? can Mary say that? How can she say with such confidence, he has scattered those who are proud? She herself is about to be hunted by a murderous dictator as he tries to kill her son. So what's going on here? Well, Mary is actually placing herself in a long line of prophets in the Old Testament who use kind of declaring what God has done in the past, as a way of stating with expectancy, and this is what he will do in the future, because this is what God is about. And so Mary is so sure that God will do what he has promised, that she proclaims it as an accomplished fact in the past tense. And therefore, for her, it's as good as done. Because the art of true worship is expectant for change. And when Mary shows us the change that God will bring about, when she shows us that that's going to mean the proud being brought low, the humble being lifted up, the rich being sent away, the hungry being filled, she's laying down a challenge to us that goes something like this, who do you align yourself with? Or who do you instinctively want to get alongside? Recently, I've really enjoyed doing some people watching when I'm out and about, and of particular interest to me has been watching the various sort of uh, work-related Christmas parties that are happening. And what I've noticed is that nearly always, if you look carefully, you can spot the person with power or wealth in the room, a boss or a big donor maybe, because invariably, they have a crowd of people around them smiling and laughing at their jokes, whether they're funny or not. It's so easy to do, isn't it? I see this in myself all the time. It's far easier to seek out people who we think can benefit us or give us power in some way. But God calls the church, God calls you and I to have a preferential treatment, a special place in our heart for the poor, the oppressed, the suffering, and the overlooked. I just can't make sense of Mary's statement any other way. And that's why Mary's song is so often described as revolutionary. It is challenging and it is deeply radical. And the truth is, I finish, is that God does not ask us to do what he has not done himself. You know, Jesus' enemies thought that they were giving him the ultimate insult by describing him as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. The the reality is they were describing what is most glorious and beautiful about Jesus. And at Christmas, we celebrate that God was willing to come and align himself with with a motley crew like us in order to save us. And if he's done that for us, if he's gone to those lengths, then we have the ultimate motivation to align ourselves in a much smaller way with the poor and the oppressed and the suffering, because the heart of true worship is expectant for change. Can I invite you to pray with me? Father, as we consider the coldness of our hearts towards you, we do just want to ask that you would change that, that you would enable us to be moved by how good you are, to delight in who, how good you are, to rejoice in you as our saviour. We do ask as well that you would help us to be rooted and established in your grace and to stay rooted in your grace. And would you help us to live with something of that renewed expectation that Mary had to see you do great things, that as we seek your face, you will build your kingdom on earth and in London and at St. Michael's. In Jesus' name.